You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Hi everybody, this is Terry from Texas. I just want to thank you all for listening to Terry's Mysterious Moments for the last year. I know that there have been a lot of people respond about the stories and I I appreciate that. I want to thank Aaron and Britt for all the work they do on the show. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to do this. This will be the 47th episode aired, but it will be the 52nd week. So we're behind in numbers, but we're right on schedule for a year. I appreciate all of you who write in, who comment, who speak to me outside of the show. And it's great to be giving you something that you enjoy. Again, thanks Aaron and Britt for the opportunity and for the work you do on the show. Y'all have a good day. Bye. Hi folks and welcome to episode 47 of Terry's Mysterious Moments. As a fan, although that seems to be an inappropriate term in this case, of war stories of all time periods, I decided this week to talk about a few World War One and World War Two mysteries. Reason is my father served in World War One in the I'm sorry World War Two. I'm not that old. World War Two in the Army, and served in the European Theater of Operations in the Second Infantry Division of the Army. Various uncles also served in various units, but. I digress. On with the story. The first story is about a phantom plane appearing in the skies over a jumpy Pearl Harbor one year and a day after the infamous surprise attack by the Imperial Japanese Navy. Radar at Pearl picked up a contact, a single plane headed for Pearl. Two planes were scrambled to intercept the incoming aircraft. To the responding pilot's surprise, they contacted an American Curtis P-40 fighter, a plane which was out of use since right after Pearl Harbor, on mass usage, that is. It was in seriously shot-up condition. Canopy was blown away. It was missing part of a wing, an aileron was missing, and it had absolutely no landing gear. Not that it was shot up and shot away, it was that there was no landing gear on the plane. The blood-covered pilot slowly made a waving gesture to the two chase planes before slumping deeper into the cockpit. The plane then began a steady dive and crashed into a field. Emergency vehicles rushed to the crash craft. The fires were extinguished and they found nothing. No pilot was in the cockpit. A diary was found in the charred wreckage and upon examination it revealed that the plane was based over 1300 miles away on the island of Mindanao But in all honesty, it raised more questions than answers. 
If he was a wounded Pearl Harbor pilot, how did he survive for a year? How'd the plane get off the ground without landing gear? And where did his body go? Another version of the story is told in an obscure book from 1945 by Colonel, later General, Robert Lee Scott, who began his wartime service with the American Volunteer Group, otherwise known as the Flying Tigers, which flew from Chinese airfields in opposition to the Japanese. The Tigers were rolled into the American military as the 23rd Fighter Group in 1942. At the personal request of Chiang Kai-shek, who was the leader of the Republic of China based on Taiwan and who was against both the Japanese and the Red Chinese, led by Mao Zedong, Scott was named unit commander of the 23rd. He was a double ace with 13 aerial victories by 1943, all in a P-40 himself. Scott came to fame otherwise with his 1943 autobiography, God is My Co-Pilot, which was in turn made into a 1945 movie. Scott also wrote a second book, a collection of fi fictional stories inspired by the war. Its title was Damned to Glory. The first chapter was titled The Ghost Pilot, and it seems to be the basis of this story with some differences. Two fighter pilots were dispatched from Kinao Airdrome in China and intercepted the lone P-40, which shocked them by sporting a pre-war American insignia. You've seen, I'm sure, dozens of movies where the World War II planes had the single white star in a circle. And early movies from ver the very beginning of the war had the white star in a circle, but it had a red dot in the middle of the star. Well, they removed that dot so that they wouldn't be mistaken for Japanese planes who had the, the rising sun painted on their planes. Like the previous story, the landing gear were missing. Again, the pilot was slumped over. The plane was damaged beyond repair, and it did crash. Along with, again, it was recovered, and there was a diary along with the dead pilot's body and the tale it told was quite remarkable. It gave information that the pilot's name was Corn Cheryl. Uh, that's a nickname, Corn, and his last name was Cheryl, a pilot on the island of Mindanao when it fell to the Japanese. Apparently a small group of Americans remained at this destroyed airfield, and while dodging Japanese patrols, were able to scavenge and build a working P-40, except for the landing gear. Ingenuity will out, and the men were able to fashion a jettisonable, rudimentary bamboo skid contraption that would allow it to take off. They also scavenged a number of bombs and a number of extra fuel tanks for the plane. Thus arrayed, the plan was for Cheryl to take off and make an attack on the Japanese naval station on Formosa, almost a thousand miles away. The after plan was for Cheryl to try for the Tigers field at Kinao. The plan went into action. Cheryl flew to Formosa, successfully attacking the naval base there, but he came under so much fire from the ground 
that his ship was nearly destroyed and he was mortally wounded. But his plane made it to Kenau. And thus the story came out. When compared with the various versions of the story, it pretty much meshes with the differences of the return to Pearl becoming an overflight to Kenau and the missing pilot at Pearl being present at Kenau. But the question arises, did Scott mean Ghost Pilot as a true story? Reader's Digest printed the story almost immediately. It is also found that Scott retold the story in a Boston magazine called Yankee, and in the retelling, made the pilot a Boston native. A man named Dave, Dave Kite said he had attended a live event where then-General Scott was asked about the story and replied that he and another flyer had made the story up, but later it admitted it was a joke. He said the story refused to die, and if they'd known the life this simple tale would have, they would not have told it. General Scott died in February of 20, 2006 at the age of 97 at his home in Georgia. He had earned two silver stars, three distinguished flying crosses, and three air medals. He had 12 books published, and in honor of his time with the Tigers, he hiked the entire length of the Great Wall of China, all 3,000 kilometers, at the age of 72. We drift back to World War I for the next two stories. The first is somewhat of a naval mystery. In the early hours of April 30th, 1918, as the story goes, the German submarine UB-85 came to the surface of the Irish Sea. Her cruise of the last two weeks was not a profitable one, as her ten torpedoes still lay securely in their berths on the sub. Although U-boats had sunk nearly 280,000 tons of Allied shipping that month, none had been dispatched by the UB-85 and her commander, Captain Lieutenant Gunther Kresch. As the sub ran on the surface, the commander and some other officers were in the conning tower, scanning the area with binoculars, taking advantage of the full moon. But before he could continue his hunt for a victim, UB-85 was rocked by an almighty surge on the starboard side, followed by a terrific thud as something landed on the deck. Crash looked down and, to his bewilderment and horror, saw a huge sea monster emerging from the water and climbing up the side of the submarine. Capitan Lieutenant Kresch tells it this way, This beast had large eyes set in a horny sort of skull. Kresch is reported to have said, It had a small head but with teeth that could be seen glistening in the moonlight. Every man on watch began firing a sidearm at the beast but the animal had a hold of the forward gun mount and refused to let go. The monster was heavy enough to begin weighing the sub down and with hatches open, there was a very real fear of the boat being sunk if the monster weren't driven off. However, the monster eventually slid off the foredeck and back into the frigid water, but the ship was damaged and could not submerge, and daylight was coming. The UB-85 was a sitting duck.
an armed drifter, the Coryopsis, cautiously approached the sub and were correctly astonished when the entire crew of the sub was on deck, hands up, in surrender. After the Germans were taken on board, the Coryopsis, they told the tale of the sea monster's attack. The British seamen were understandably confused. The UB-85 was sunk soon after, so there was no search of the sub before it went down to verify the bizarre story. Thus ends the story. Wait, no it doesn't. Back in 2016, Scottish power officials had revealed that while laying cables in the area of the UB-85's last known position, the wreck of a U-boat was found on the bottom of the ocean. No photographs were taken of the wreck, but there was a very clear uh, sonar image of the boat, but not really clear enough to show any damage. Is the story strange? Absurd? Unbelievable? Yes to all three. Is it true? According to Gary Campbell, the keeper of the official sightings record for the Loch Ness Monster, quote, the area of sea where the attack took place has a history of sea monster sightings. They have ranged from the north coast of Wales to Liverpool Bay, he said. Continuing, what the captain said could well be true. It's great to see how Nessie's saltwater cousin clearly got involved in helping with the war effort. She even managed to do the damage without anyone being killed. Six of one, half dozen of the other. Such are the arguments over stories like this. However, some light was shed when researching captured German Navy archives, captured at the end of World War II. The archives were from 1850 to 1945. It was known that a, that a retired detective from the San Jose PD, who was also an American naval historian, named Dwight Messimer, presented in a 2002 book called Verscholen, or Missing, World War I U-Boat Losses. In the depths of the archives were several interviews with former UB-85 crew members, which lay the blame of the sinking of their boat squarely on the shoulders of Captain Leutnant Kresch. It seems he had wanted a heater installed in the officers' quarters, which required a cable to be run through the conning tower, thus making it incapable of being sealed. When the sub attempted to submerge, when British ships were spotted, water rushed in through the unsealable hatch, forcing the boat to resurface. The commander and one other man stayed below decks to scuttle the boat before emerging and surrendering to the British. It is wondered if the commander came up with such a ridiculous story in order to throw blame off himself, and if so, did he really think the German higher-ups were dopey enough to believe it? It is interesting, though, that Captain Capitan Leutnant Kresch lived only until 1919. Perhaps his death was at the hands, and if not the hands, at least at the order of those in command over him during the war. That's another mystery, though. That's a supposition on my part. 
My last mystery is a very real question about a very real event. Who killed the infamous Baron Manfred Albrecht Freiherr von Richthofen, the Red Baron, or the Bloody Red Baron of World War I fame or infamy? The Red Baron was the ace of aces of the First World War, credited with 80 kills, but considered to be quite a feat seeing as how he was only flying for three years in the war. Richthofen was a former cavalryman, but changed over to the air service in 1915, joining the fighter squadron known as Jagdstaffel II in 1916. He rapidly distinguished himself as a fighter pilot, then in 1917, he was given command of Yasta 11, then the larger Jagdgeschwader 1. I know I'm destroying these German words and I'm sorry. Jagdgeschwader 1, which became known as the Flying Circus, so-called because of the bright colors he and his pilots painted their planes, and because they were constantly being moved, much like a traveling circus. Baron Richthofen died on April 21, 1918, in the skies over Morioncourt Ridge near the Somme River. He had been pursuing a novice Canadian pilot, Lieutenant Wilfred, nicknamed WAP, last name May, at low altitude because Lieutenant May had attacked the Baron's cousin so he attacked the Canadian to get him off his cousin's tail, and his cousin lived. But as he was pursuing May at low altitude, he was spotted by another Canadian, Captain Arthur, nicknamed Roy, last name Brown, who attacked Richthofen in order to give his fellow Canadian a chance to get away. After the initial attack passed, Richthofen resumed pursuit of Mays. Brown resumed his own pursuit of the Red Baron and fired on the German. The Red Baron was hit and was able to bring his plane down in a controlled crash near the lines of the Australian Imperial Force. But when men from that group reached the plane, the Baron was dead. Thus arises the question, who fired the fatal shot? It is widely accepted that Richthofen died from a single 303 caliber bullet which entered his chest under his right arm and exited by his left nipple. The bullet damaged both his lungs and his heart. Death was near instantaneous. It has been said that from the angle of the wound that Captain Brown could not have fired the bullet during his pursuit of the Baron. Brown was given credit by the RAF for the kill. However, Brown came in on the attack from above, behind, and to the left of Richthofen. So any bullets would have been either in Richthofen's back or his left side, not from the right. However, it has been pressed that an Aussie anti-aircraft gunnery sergeant named Cedric Popkin of the Australian 24th Machine Gun Company was possibly the one who shot the Baron. He was using a Vickers gun, which is a caliber 303, 
and had caused a fire on the Baron twice that morning. Once during a nose-on run the Baron made at the sergeant's position, then later at a distance where he fired on the Baron from the Baron's right as the Baron flew left or right in front of him. The first incidents would not have caused the wound, but the second one certainly could have. Other people were named as possible shooters. Gunner, W.J., nicknamed Snowy, last name Evans, manning a Lewis gun with the 53rd Battery, 14th Field Artillery Brigade, Royal Australian Artillery, has been suggested, but the angle of the wound leaves him lacking in the case. Evidence for him is just not there. Another gunner, Robert Buey, of the same unit as above, is also suggested as Richthofen's killer, but very, very little evidence backs up this argument. I think he was just a claim because they didn't know who did it. At any rate, the reign of death that the Red Baron was responsible for was ended that day. His enemies, as in keeping with the honor of the times, provided him with the hero's funeral. It has been suggested that when the Baron received a head wound in combat in 1917, that the effects of this wound could have altered Richthofen in such a way as to change the way he acted in combat, becoming either disoriented and or becoming careless in his tactics. Whatever the case, we know this for certain. Snoopy was not responsible for the Red Baron's demise, and that we can be sure of. Hey, thanks for listening again to episode 47 of Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to encourage you, if you want to write me, to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments on Facebook or Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Either way, I get the messages and I answer them. I'd love to talk to somebody about this. If they have some other clues, I want to hear about it. If you have a story you want to share, I want to hear about it. If you have a story idea, I want to hear about it. Uh, however, I do have one thing to say. I have been asked to look up and do a story on Amish ghost stories. Now, as much as I've tried, I've only found one Amish ghost story. And that was called Crybaby Bridge about four young Amish kids on Rumspringa. So, there's not really a lot out there that I can see. And I don't want to go quoting what a TV show has already done. Uh, somebody suggested Amish witches. There may be some, I don't know, but I can't find much on them. And again, I don't want to use a script from a TV to illustrate my story, so... Sorry about the Amish ghost stories, y'all. It's just not going to happen. But anyway, that's all I have for this week. So, again, thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Um, I hope you have a good week, a good night, good time, and goodbye.